This podcast and project is brought to you by our friends at Team RWB. Team Red, White, and Blue is a nonprofit organization forging the nation's leading health and wellness community. Founded in 2010, Team RWB supports veterans as they prioritize their well-being by offering real-life and virtual opportunities to build healthier lifestyles. Team RWB believes that a strong focus on mental and physical health impacts every aspect of life and is essential for veterans to unlock their full potential. For more information about Team RWB and its 200,000 members, visit teamrwb.org. What can you say about Lisa Jaster that hasn't already been said? 37 years old, by the way, the average age of graduate is 23, she became the third female to earn the coveted Ranger tab. And this was after going on hiatus from a booming career at Shell Oil Company as an engineer. Multiple combat deployments, multiple degrees, and multiple lives lived as a wife and mother of three. But what about legacy? What about the heart of the woman looking past the conquests? That's always been the goal of this work, and even that's been repeated multiple times. It all becomes a massive platitude if we don't get down to the heart of the individual and define the why. Why did she do it? Why did she go after the tab? Why did she choose to compete in a field of humans a decade and a half her junior? Getting to the heart of the matter was the goal. This is Lisa's why. The Veterans Project is a comprehensive essay capturing the legacies of our warfighters, caregivers, and civilians who have stepped forward in defense of our patriotic principles in an effort to capture their stories and to never forget the staggering sacrifices of our nation's finest. This is the Veterans Project Podcast, where our legacies are the mission. Here's your host, Tim Kay. Welcome to the Veterans Project Podcast. My name is Tim Kay. I'll be your host. We've got Lisa Jaster here. And, you know, first of all, I just want to say that it's it's a privilege to be here. We're very thankful to Team RWB for having you as a part of this. Thank you so much for coming on. And thank you so much for having me, Tim. Oh, yeah. It's an honor uh, and I'm very thankful for your time and uh, also just an incredible career. We'll go down that track, uh, obviously, but I want to talk to you a little bit about life before. What, where did you start out at and kind of what led your path to the army? Why did you decide to go the officer route? So yeah, if you could talk about life before and growing up in Wisconsin, that would be great. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm from a small town, uh, Plymouth, Wisconsin. And, um, I don't know. I, I thought life was really awesome, but it wasn't, nothing was really challenging in Plymouth. Um, not that I couldn't have done better. I, I didn't work really hard as an athlete. I did, I worked really hard at school, um, part-time jobs, et cetera, but I, nothing seemed like a huge challenge to me. Um, I was dancing, um, with the local ballet school, Sudero school of dance. And it was about seventh grade time frame when, um, the first Gulf war occurred. And I'm watching TV and I'm looking at these people and I'm thinking, you know, we watch movies all the time of war heroes, but these are actual war heroes. Every single one of these people are, are heroes that are defending our nation and doing something absolutely amazing. And that was me watching the news, not a movie. So that kind of started the first little spark of maybe I want to join the military. 
And then my grandmother, uh, my paternal grandmother, was living in Massachusetts, and she went by, I think it was, she actually went by Harvard, and they were having a book sale on the lawn of part of the school. And for 99 cents, she bought me this book called In the Men's House by Carol Barkalaw. And she was one of the first women to graduate from the United States Military Academy at West Point in 1980. And so my grandma bought this book and sent it to me. And this, again, is after the first Gulf War. And I read it cover to cover. And I was like, wow, this sounds hard. Like, this sounds really hard. And the timing of the two events um, kind of synced in my mind. And I thought, okay, that's it. I want to go to West Point. And my father was a West Point grad, class of 1968. Now, I didn't live with my dad. I lived with my mom in Plymouth. But I had some loose ties, well, pretty close ties <laughs> to, to West Point and thought, okay, Let's let's start doing some research. And it isn't like today. You couldn't Google it. Google didn't exist. Mm. So I'd go to the library and there was very little on West Point unless it was mentioned when talking about General Patton or one of the other um, superheroes of World War One, World War Two. So, again, I have this thing in my mind that these soldiers, these officers, these West Point graduates are superheroes. They're they're true real world heroes. So starting in seventh grade, I started writing my congressman. I started going to events, trying to find out, number one, more about West Point, but also how to get a nomination, because that's the hardest part. You, you have to be physically fit. You have to be academically fit. You take a physical fitness test. You take a medical exam. But you have to get a congressional or senatorial nomination. And from Plymouth, Wisconsin, I didn't know how to do that. Um so I started in seventh grade. By the time I was interviewing junior, senior year of high school with my um, congressman, they had packets on me because I would send them my school pictures. Like mm. they had my eighth grade school picture wow. in a packet because I just started sending it saying, hey, I want to go to the academy someday. And um, so that's that's what drove me to the academy and drove me the officer route is is that kind of chain of events in my my middle school period. Mm, that's awesome. Was it, did you, was that invigorating for you getting into that career path and deciding to go down that, that way? I mean, that's, that's a tremendously tough school, obviously. Uh, did you, were you invigorated by the idea of that? Was that exciting to you? Yeah. And as an engineer being soul focused was healthy for me. I, I had an end state. I had a goal. I actually worried about what was going to happen after I graduated because it was, I was so singularly focused for so long that once I got in, I'm like, oh, now I need to discover new goals and new aspirations. It, I, I, I reached where I wanted to be. Um, it was invigorating. It was also scary. Um, I had this impression in my mind that everyone going to West Point was going to be pristine. They weren't going to talk trash like I did. They, they weren't going to make the mistakes that I made on a regular basis, sometimes by choice. Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to not be a good kid. I just thought everybody was going to be perfect. Mm -hmm. And that was really intimidating once I got accepted that I was going to show up and I was going to be the dumpy fat kid, mm -hmm. uh, that was dumb around <laughs> all the genius athletes. Dumpy fat kid. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you, I held everybody up on such a high pedestal yeah, yeah. again, patent. Mm -hmm. And, and then I step on the grounds and, and I was like, wow, everybody here is, you know, top 10 of their graduating class, three, three letter varsity athletes for four years. Like everybody here is amazing. But then I realized everybody else was a bunch of chuckleheads when they needed to be as well. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that's kept me tied to the military is even when 
working with general officers, they still know how to let their hair down and let their hair down in the right way. I remember being at West Point and seeing senior senior ranking officers doing keg stands, which sounds completely unprofessional, <laughs> but it's also that warlike mentality, right? You have to be able to work really, really hard, but then also be able to bond and work together and and let your hair down, which you can't do if you're always uptight and you're always worried about being that extremely successful, high-performing individual. Right. That makes sense. Did you... Was that a... What was the drive to really... You, you talked about joining mm-hmm. and you talked about the reason for that. In your time there, did you enjoy it as much as you thought you would? I loved it. I loved it. I even loved getting in trouble. Um <laughs> There was... I even love getting in trouble. The best line of the podcast so far. Yes. yes. <laughs> I even love getting in trouble. Yes. There was just something about being part of... Um, okay, there's a place at West Point called Flirty Walk, Flirtation Walk. And okay. it's it's where when my dad was a cadet, um, the cadets would take their girlfriends to get some privacy. Mm-hmm. Well, it still exists. Everybody knows where it is. And it's just the idea that I wonder what general officer that I'm saluting actually took his girlfriend down here, you know, and and the whole idea of the West Point always talks about, um, the history we study was made by our graduates. Right. Mm. And, and just to think that there were various superheroes in the United States army who got in trouble at that school Mm. or failed a class or were, they were human here. So I'm walking on hallowed ground, but it's hallowed ground that real people existed. Right. That, and that key being humanity. I mean, it's, you know, anyone's capable of that, and you know, and yet still becoming incredible leadership and uh, persevering through that is amazing. Yes. Uh, you know, it, I'm sure all the, you know, you talked about some of those inspiring figures, you know, like Patton and all that he did. Did you, was there one example to you in your time? at West Point, or maybe more, I mean, I'm sure multiple examples for you that were very, that that were just incredibly impressive human beings that you really looked up to in your leadership model? So probably one of the people I try to emulate the most is a fellow West Point woman, fellow West Point grad, but we weren't there together. She Mm. was one of my first company commanders when I went to active duty. And, um, her, she's now a general officer, which is fantastic. Uh, when she graduated West Point, it was Stephanie Arnold, but she's now Stephanie Ahern. And something she did, and it seems like the smallest thing, but it goes back to the repeat message I've said is she demonstrated being human while being amazing. And she would have all of her officers as a company commander over for breakfast after officer PT. So one day a week, all the enlisted guys had sergeant's time training and the squad leaders would would run PT for the enlisted soldiers and the officers weren't invited to join. So the officers went off and did PT on their own. Well, I had never worked for a female before and Captain Ahern at the time, now General Ahern said, well, everybody's just going to, we're going to do officer PT together and then you'll come over to my house on base. And she was married to another Captain Ahern. So it was Captain and Captain Ahern. And she's like, you'll come over to Captain Captain Ahern's house. Everybody will shower there and I'll make pancakes or whatever it was. 
And I thought, wow, that's such a chick thing to do. <laughs> like, like what went through my head was, come on, ma'am. Like, don't be, don't be that girl, right? Pancakes. <laughs> right? It just seems That sounds good, actually. Yeah, but but no dude would do that in a combat engineer battalion. Right. Like, come on over to my house, I'll make you pancakes. <laughs> Like, come over to my house and we'll drink whiskey. Like, that's what my male company commander probably would have said. And so here we are, and it's just a really casual environment. We're rotating through her on-base housing. You know, each lieutenant is taking a quick shower, coming out, getting to meet her husband, um, eating pancakes, just, just talking. And from that day forward, we were completely different as an organization. And it trickled down to the soldiers. Like there wasn't as much of negative competition, but more um, productive competition between the platoons. There was two vertical platoons. And by the two vertical platoon leaders getting to know each other a little bit better on a non-military scenario, right? I mean, eating pancakes, pass (laughs) pass the syrup. It it breaks some (laughs) barriers. Oh my God, how much butter are you really going to use? Yeah. And Somebody goes from being your coworker to being now your buddy that you work with. Mm-hmm. And it changes the dynamic, but it really demonstrated how leadership trickles down when you saw the soldiers get tighter because the lieutenants were tighter. That's awesome. Yeah. That's really cool. So you're at West Point. You were there for four years or five years or four years. Yeah. Every Everybody should graduate in four years. Okay, okay. <laughs> Not everybody does, though, clearly, there, right? <laughs> there are, if you get in a lot of trouble. Okay, okay. More trouble than I even <laughs> tried to get into. Um, you, you still only get four years there. Okay. But you get kicked out, get, get to go to the regular army, and then come back when you can behave oh, yourself. Oh, yeah. I didn't know this rule about West Point. I oh, had no idea. Oh, yeah. It's a very strict environment. You even yeah. have bedtime for four years. Okay, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I did know that. I knew it was a strict environment. I just didn't know that you could get kicked out and yeah, I had no idea. Yep. Come back. Yes. Wow. Yes. Yeah, I go the special route. Yes. <laughs> you did not go that route though. I did not. Yeah, I yeah. instead got two years of post restriction, which means that not only did I have a bedtime, but I wasn't allowed to leave the game <laughs> for two full years. So you so what you were talking about earlier. I did. I enjoyed yeah. getting in trouble. <laughs> Badly, so yes, yes. But you know what? That's that's one of the other reasons I loved West Point is that like I learned how to bowl. There was a bowling alley inside of the post gates. Mm-hmm. I learned how to shoot because there was a range inside the gates. I learned how. Well, I should have learned how to ski. I really didn't because mm-hmm. instead I had hip surgery, oh, um, which is another story. Yeah. But you know, I learned how to run the gates and I learned how to do all of these really cool things because I was stuck on a military installation that had a bunch of stuff I would never do with a bunch of high-performing people that were, hey, it's Friday night and you can't go anywhere. Let's go Let's go learn how to ice skate mm. at the hockey rink. Okay, sure. Sweet. That sounds like a fun career, a uh, fun time there for sure. That sounds like you had a good time. I did. What? What? So po- post-West Point, you, yes. you graduate, and what's the career track from there? Where did you go to from there? So I graduated from West Point with a degree in civil engineering and chose to branch engineer. Okay. So my first duty assignment was going to be 92nd Engineer Battalion Combat Heavy at Fort Stewart, Georgia. Before I went there, I had to go to Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri um, and do my officer basic course. So um, got to Fort Stewart, and of course, September 11th happened, as everyone's very familiar with. And mm. our- What was that like? Yeah, I don't want to stop you, but... 
that obviously is very serious occurrence. Yes. And it's traumatic to the whole world. Um, you know, at least, uh, well, all our allies, I mean, you know, we've done the podcasts and projects on some British guys too, and their experience of it was an Australian as well. And their experience of it was very, uh, in some ways even cooler because to join up for a cause that's not really your own is pretty special. It is. Uh, but when you, you had that happen. And you were at Fort Stewart. What was mm-hmm. that like for you to, to hear about that? Where well, were you? Well, yeah, the, the actual September 11th experience for me started on September 10th. I had just taken a new platoon. I had taken the, what we called back then, terminology has changed, the horizontal platoon. So it was all the horizontal construction. Um, so I had all the dozers, the graders, the scrapers, the big equipment. And I had just taken that platoon over. And on September 10th, one of my soldiers, his girlfriend, dumped him Mm. and he decided to take a a 22 to his temple in her driveway sitting in his car. And so here I am. I, I barely know the soldier. Um, Mm. I had a couple soldiers that actually looked alike and it took me until I got to the hospital to make sure I remembered which soldier it was. And, And I feel horrible saying that, but that's how little I knew about these people on September 10th. That's so sad for yes. that to happen right before. Yeah. Yes. Gr- great kid. Mm-hmm. Absolutely great. Um, and actually, I, I say kid, but he was a year older than me. Mm-hmm. And so here I am, a young, young first lieutenant. And I'm in, I get a phone call September 10th. Hey, we, we don't have a next of kin. So we don't, we don't have anyone to contact about this guy. And it's not that we don't have his paperwork. He's got nobody listed as who to call. So I have to show up because I'm his platoon leader and I'm in neuro ICU signing paperwork and working with legal to become his power of attorney Wow! for a guy I couldn't have identified mentally until I saw the tattoos on his arm. Wow. And, um, again, great guy in a real bad way. And Mm. it was really hard and thank God he survived, but I'm driving back. Oh, he lived. He did live. Oh, wow. So he was in neuro ICU. Didn't know they that moved part. The, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it's completely crazy. And his yeah. story is even better because when we came back from our first deployment, he met us out for bowling. Obviously, mm. I like bowling. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm from Wisconsin. Okay. Big bowler. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. I love bowling too. Yeah. Me too. Also. Terrible. Yes, yes, yes. terrible. Two shoulder surgeries. Don't bowl. Don't go. I didn't have the shoulder surgeries. I just played baseball in college. So what's my excuse? Yeah, just bad. (laughs) (laughs) You don't need to make an excuse for me, Lisa. It's okay. But anyways, we were on a very serious story, and then I interrupted with. Well, you have to laugh when you're too serious. That's the joy of the military. That's that's how we deal with things, right? Right. Really, really inappropriate jokes. (laughs) And um, yeah, so. He met up with us at bowling and he was partially paralyzed at one side on one side wow. from the bullet getting lodged in the side of his brain. But we're, what was really neat is he started working the mental health area of the hospital at Fort Stewart, helping other soldiers through depression. Mm. And he was thanking God for his life. He had, you know, found Jesus. He had awesome. found inspiration. He loved the army because the army didn't kick him out just because he was partially paralyzed. Like mm. this guy's life went from zero to hero yeah. and he was saving lives every day. And mm. it, it's, it's this really cool, emotional, horrible story that only the army can give you. Yeah. So that was September 10th. And I got to bed probably two, three o'clock in the morning. 
and we had PT the next day. So I had to drive home and I was living in Savannah because that's where all the lieutenants lived. But Fort Stewart was a solid 30 minutes away if you didn't drive 70 miles per hour. Um, so I, I go in for PT and I'm running late the next morning thinking, you know, the boss isn't going to care. Obviously I've got other things to deal with. Um, so I'm running late for our morning meeting and I pull in and we don't have laptop computers. We don't have self like decent cell phones. I had a Nextel push to talk back then. Um, <laughs> if you remember that, I don't even know if you're old I enough to remember, remember that. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. So, so you know, and, and we had pagers. Mm -hmm. So I had no idea what was going on. It wasn't on the radio. I was listening to Rage Against the Machine with all my windows open, trying to stay awake while driving into Fort Stewart. A good choice. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I won't go down that rabbit hole, but I could very quickly. <laughs> and I get in the office just as the second tower is falling. Mm. And I'm thinking, holy crap. Um, and then I just don't believe it. I'm like, okay, I'm exhausted. I'm, ha I'm having a nightmare. I'm still in bed. Mm. And then because we were the, I was the construction, horizontal construction, I had all the dozers. They're like, hey, we're on lockdown. Fort Stewart's on lockdown. Nobody's going home. Uh, there was a major highway going through the center of Fort Stewart, Georgia. So we had to reroute all traffic. Like semis used to go through Fort Stewart back in 2001. Wow. So we had to get Jersey barriers, Texas barriers. There's a difference between the two, by the way. I didn't you, know there was a difference. Yeah, no, Texas what's... are the big ones. Okay, gotcha. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> Jersey okay, barriers yeah. are the ones that are like two or three feet, well, three feet high. Okay. You know, the ones you like bump your knee on and swear. Jersey barriers are the ones that look like walls. Important or, differentiation that only an engineer would know. Yes, yes. The, the Texas barriers look like a mobile wall. And, <laughs> okay. and that's the difference. Gotcha. So we're finding these all over post, wherever we can find these concrete barriers, and we're blocking off roads. We're digging through people's yards. Like people who live right outside of the Fort Stewart cantonment area were berming up because there's all these dirt roads. You know, it's Georgia, lots of rednecks. Right. And so we have to completely close off the base for the first time ever. Mm. And so we were working. I don't even remember how long we were there. And the next thing I know, I get tagged to be uh, a QRF commander. So myself and 15 soldiers from my platoon and other platoons in the company got put on a 15 minute recall. And we rotated every eight hours. And there was wow. three groups of us that would rotate in and out. And um, we had live ammunition. Mm. And just in case somebody came to Fort Stewart and the MPs weren't big enough to, to handle it, I had one of the QRF teams for Fort Stewart. Wow. And, and that's my September 11th experience. Wow. But then after that, we, we deployed to Afghanistan soon thereafter. By, by November, we had, a, we had a couple platoons go and... Then soon in 2002, the rest of us went over to Afghanistan. Mm, wow, that's wild. The, what was your personal feeling, though? Like, you obviously, you talked a little bit about, you know, going and, uh, and you know, what happened at Fort Stewart. But how did you, how did you feel in the moment? There's all the weird emotions, but... Um, since I'm hoping most of the people that listen either are military or love military, they'll understand this statement. It's kind of like when you're in the army and there isn't a war going on, you feel like you're red shirted mm. that you're sitting on the bench. Mm. So when all of the, Oh my God, I hate this. I hate this for the nation. Um, when all of those emotions passed, the number one thing that popped in my head is hot damn, I get to get, they're putting me in the game. Yeah. Like I I'm looking forward to this because this is, this is, what inspired me when I was in seventh grade. This is 
all of our cadences that were called while we were cadets at West Point, talking about choppers and jumping on airplanes and killing and dying. And, you know, it sounds awful, but I mean, that's, that's what we trained to do. And I thought, wow, you know, I actually get to defend my nation. I actually get to do this for my mom, for my dad, for my brothers and sisters. Like I get to go. And I was, I was pretty fired up, which, you know, again, if you don't have a military background can sound morbid, but for those who've served, you understand it's, it's they'll get it. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, so you, you get over to, so you get to play to Afghanistan. What was it like getting on the ground for the first time ever and being there? I mean, cause you got put in the game pretty early on, yeah. which is uh, huge. I mean, that's kind of like the dream of like when you're in, in that time period, right. right. Is to like, you want to be there in the action and yes. then you get that. Yes. What's that like? Well, it was crazy because we couldn't land our airplanes. Um, the the airfield, of course, had been destroyed, so we couldn't land um, anything bigger than, I think we had some C-17s and C-130s, but we couldn't land a C-5. We couldn't land anything bigger. And I've got dozers, graders, scrapers. i got huge equipment. So like one piece of equipment at a time with maybe five soldiers could, could go in. And so we had to wait till Kandahar was secure. And then a lot of times we just couldn't land because something was going on. There was, there was fire on the ground. There was um, action. So we would turn around. And I got stuck in the place called Diego Garcia, which very few people know what it is, but it's this gorgeous island. Yeah. yeah, there's um, the Air Force is there, and it's it's a duty station. It's just one of those jumping off points. It's beautiful, mm, absolutely cool. beautiful, um, and. And I got to go there and I always pack my swimsuit. Mm, okay. It doesn't matter where I'm going or what I'm doing. And I, <laughs> so I happen to have a bikini in my rucksack because your A bag, B bag and C bag were all in containers. But in my rock, I had a bikini. So I'm in the ocean um, <laughs> swimming with sea turtles and I'm supposed to be going to combat. <laughs> so when <laughs> we would, yes, <laughs> again, not the normal story. But when we finally landed in Kandahar, it was really crazy because we had tried, I think it was five straight days. We had mm. tried to come in and gotten turned around and rerouted. So when we finally landed, um, my mom has a picture of me and she's like, you look so scared. I'm like, I don't think I was scared. I think I was exhausted and pissed. Yeah. And we had um, weird con- conglomeration of uniforms because you know at the time it was bdus well bdus aren't import um aren't right for the desert right so we had a combination between the new desert uniforms that were coming out the dcus and um the old uh first gulf war chocolate chip uniforms and then awesome but, fashion yes, statement yes, <laughs> yes. And, and as a reservist now i'm used to it but when i was active duty i was like this is awful we look we look like a hodgepodge like we we look like we <laughs> walked out of the salvation army not the united <laughs> states army and so you know and we have these frag vests that you know they're good for fragmentation but they couldn't wouldn't stop a bullet yeah. and they're huge on all of us and we just it was crazy. Yeah. Um, I'm familiar with all the old pictures. It yes. just looks like a big, gigantic mess. Yes, yeah. yes. I look like a camouflage marshmallow. <laughs> <laughs> like, there was nothing badass about me. And, of course, you've got it in your head. You've seen all the war movies. And that's not what I look like. I, I look not even like a hot mess, just a marshmallow. Yeah. yeah. And But, so we got off the airplane, and it's noise and light discipline, and... um. It was good because we got there. 
And then the most interesting thing for me is I never got nervous again. Mm. You know, it didn't matter if the um, incoming alarms were going off or anything else. I, I never felt nervous again. I felt like I was where I was supposed to be okay. because I had spent since 1996 training for this moment. And I really got to understand how important your battle buddies were. And, and it's something that I know we're going to get to. But I cannot express enough how important it is to have those battle buddies and to have those guys to your right and left that you'd like to throw them off the edge of a bridge some days, mm-hmm. but you'd take a bullet for them. And, and, and I was surrounded <laughs> We've by We've all got that. one of those, yes, right? At yes. least one, yeah. Yes. And I, and I think the absolute best part about it for me was that you knew everyone else felt the same and you were all there for a singular purpose. And there was nothing else to do. Like there was no dishes to wash, no laundry to do, no house to clean. Everybody was there to serve the nation and we were singularly focused. And that was, that was almost a pressure relief for me. That singular focus is huge. I mean, that's important mission mindedness. Yeah. And you experienced that in a very heavy way. I mean, you're there during the start of it. So, you know, what's that like? What, What kind of missions were you guys running at the time and what were you all doing? specifically. Yeah. So the first thing to do is Kandahar airfield for us was secure, but it wasn't operable. I already mentioned we couldn't bring in airplanes big enough to, to get what we needed in theater. So the first thing we had to do was rapid runway repair. Mm -hmm. The next thing was to um, upgrade the base camp because it was still had houses, random houses in the middle of it. It had areas that hadn't been cleared. Back then in 2002, we didn't have route clearance platoons or area clearance platoons. So my job, one of my jobs became doing um, clearance operations. Mm. So we put armor on bulldozers and just start in a rake on the front of the blade and started clearing for mines. And we were finding new stuff. We were finding UXOs from the U.S. We were finding Russian unexploded ordnance. Sure. And as we dug down or if there was a day where there was rain or a lot of wind, suddenly new bombs would uh, kind of soak their way upwards through the loose sand. Wow. And so it would be a cleared area and all of a sudden it's not cleared. And you're not sure if it's, hey, is somebody coming through the wire or is this old? And and we had to discover what everything was. And then we also had to run missions outside because as engineers, we had to clear those areas outside the wire. But then we also, to fix the runway, we had to bring in sand and Portland and uh, rock and rebar and all the supplies that you just don't, it just doesn't appear. Mm-hmm. And we need to do that before we could fly stuff in from Turkey or the U S or, um, or Germany or any other, our other NATO allies, because there was no way to get it into the airfield without driving it. So we had people driving into Kandahar city, trying to get the right type of Portland cement, which doesn't exist in that part of the world. So mm-hmm. now we're creating, new chemical formulas to use different types of Portland type cement so that we can land an airplane on it without cracking the run runway in half. And we're doing waste management and, um, a lot of really cool real world. We've got to do this to live missions, but then also a lot of force protection missions that you talk about in officer basic, or you talk about in sapper school, or you talk about when you're a junior soldier, like, Hey, how do we build a proper, fighting position, but, but now we're actually doing it. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. Wow. And so you enjoyed that process for sure. Yeah. For sure. 
Did um, so? How long was that deployment? We stayed there about nine months. Nine that months. Time. Yeah. Okay. Everybody made it. Did everybody make it through? Everybody did make it through. Okay. Um, we lost some of our brothers and sisters while we were there, but nobody from um, my company or my platoon. Okay. Uh, good. Lost their life in that action. Oh, good, good. And it it really was um. It really was a blessing. Because we were running convoys on a regular basis and convoys before and after my soldiers and myself were getting hit, were um, having issues with IEDs and um, harassment Absolutely. From, from the locals. And, and my guys just didn't, didn't have that luck. So mm. uh, it's something I emphasize when I do talk to veterans who say, well, I never or I didn't. Well, it's not that you didn't see combat it's that you were blessed enough that your convoy was safe or when you were outside of the wire doing missions you didn't get into um conflict or actions it's not that you weren't willing to so never 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 undermine the importance of your service just because the guy before you or the guy after you got shot doesn't mean you weren't putting yourself out there you raised your right hand you volunteered your veteran service even if you're not a disabled vet is just as valuable as everybody else who volunteered to go over there. Absolutely agree with that. A hundred percent. Um, what, so, so you were there for how long? You said nine months. Yeah, about nine months. Nine months. And then you came back. Yes. Okay. And what was that period in transition? Like how long were you back here before you went over to Iraq? Right. Yeah. So that was an interesting thing because we were a force com asset. So, um, we, we were stationed at Fort Stewart, but we weren't part of Fort Stewart. And so our first deployment, we went over um, at the end of 10th Mountain's deployment, stayed with 101st Task Force Roxon. Ah, okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah, good guys. And, and then we... Some of them. Yes, yes. A lot of them, but yeah. yeah. And, and then we, we stayed over there to do the right seat ride and the handover with 82nd Airborne. Mm-hmm. And then when we came back, 3rd ID, um, Rock of the Marne, Fort Stewart, was deploying mm. to Iraq. So we did a reset... And then probably six months, I, I, I'd have to do my math better, but six, six plus or minus months, we went over to Iraq and our equipment left a lot earlier. So we, we brought it back from Afghanistan, what we could, none of the armored dozers could fly again because they were just too heavy. So we ended up leaving a lot of equipment in theater, but the equipment we got back, we tried to get all the dust out of the cracks and crevices, um, and I say that about the people as well. We tried to get all the dust out of the cracks and crevices. And then we put them on a ship, um, some of our people, but a lot of our equipment. And we were supposed to go into Iraq through Turkey. So mm. a lot of my stuff and my people were sitting offshore in Turkey waiting for the invasion or liberation, however you feel your <laughs> politics need to say it. Um, it's one or the other. But uh, yeah, we were waiting in Turkey and then Turkey said, no, you're not going through, um, you're not going to Iraq through Turkey. So they had to reroute through Kuwait. Mm, I'd heard heard that. I'd heard about that period. So what time frame was this? So it was early to mid 2003. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I'd heard about that with Turkey specifically. Um, And so you guys went in through Kuwait. Right. And did you convoy up? We did convoy. Um. Because we were doing construction, we actually built base camps along the way. So we weren't um, we weren't thunder running. We weren't in that initial push with 3ID. We were following behind building 
life support areas. Okay. And and we very would, necessary job. Yes, yes. Unfortunately, part of being an engineer is you go somewhere where it's crappy, make it nice, and then you leave <laughs> and go somewhere else where it's crappy and make it nice. So so we did a lot of best occupation. Ever. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Next time, if the younger self should have thought about this a little bit better. <laughs> but yeah, so so we were doing building those base camps, those life support areas, um, and after a while, someone up in DC was like, wait a second, these guys were deployed for nine months, less than a year ago. Let's bring them back. So we didn't stay there very long. I think it was, it was less than six months. I don't know if it was four or five months on our deployment to Iraq, but, but we came back fairly early after that, um, that deployment. Mm, Okay. So how did you feel about that deployment? Did you feel like you got to do everything you wanted to do? So I had the joy of um, getting salmonella in Afghanistan and then getting the Norwalk virus or Norwa. I forget how it said, but it's similar to salmonella. So I got really, really sick on both deployments. And I kept just thinking, God, this this sucks. Um, And Iraq was, Iraq was moderately more difficult mentally for me. Mm. Um, I was no longer a platoon leader. I was a company executive officer. Okay. So I didn't have my people. XO. Yes. Yes. I was an XO and I had a really great, um, again, the military is not always, um, politically correct in our sense of humor. So we had a Hispanic. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, so I didn't have my people, the same way that I did in Afghanistan, I didn't have my platoon, but one of my old squad leaders had become the ops uh, NCO and he, he had like a side gig selling stuff online. So his call sign became eBay. We had a Hispanic supply sergeant and uh, her call sign was hot tamale. Mm-hmm. And we did all those, you know, completely unprofessional, inappropriate things, got in trouble a lot. From- this all sounds very San Antonio to me. <laughs> <laughs> You're 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 uh, explaining to a guy in an, who is in an infantry unit like the yes. the inappropriate. I uh, understand. Right, right. <laughs> Nobody here. Well, who knows? I mean, a, a lot of people get offended about everything nowadays. But yes. you are hitting on some hilarious points. Oh that's, yes, that's yes. Funny. So so at one point in time, my battalion commander was like, "Hey, Lieutenant Peplinski, this is not." These people can hear you over the radio. <laughs> Maybe don't call the girl with the Hispanic accent tamale yeah, yeah. on the radio. Like she yeah. calls me dozer. Like that's totally appropriate. <laughs> and I swear to God, he said something like, um, we walked from inside his tent where he was giving me my senior raider counseling to outside the tent. Mm-hmm. And the guys were, we finally were established and the guys were starting to put up those old GP mediums, which suck to put up if if you're not familiar with those things i mean they'd been around i think since the 70s and just getting all the metal to to connect but we were putting up tents to for the guys to guys and gals gender neutral to live in and as we're talking the colonel looks at me he goes you know the guys below you will take a bullet for you they absolutely adore you but you know just you need to manage your reputation up a little bit better because we don't know if you're actually doing the right thing. Like your superiors looking down, we see that your guys trust you, but but we're not sure if we should trust you. <laughs> and and he said it in the nicest way possible. It was an OER counseling. It was great. It's exactly what he should have said to me. But just then, um, my old one of my soldiers um, is like swinging around on the metal frame of the tent, mm-hmm. 
and he's doing like muscle up type things. Yes, um, yes, yes. Before I knew what a muscle up was. And he's up there and this specific soldier was mine. And of course, while I'm talking to the battalion commander, he hollers out to me. And this soldier and I had ridden on the airplane together to uh, the jump off point in Kuwait. And I had admitted to him that one of my favorite movies was Big Daddy. Mm, okay, yeah. And if you're familiar with Big Daddy, when the kid Julian gets taken away from Adam Sandler's character, he starts yelling, but I wipe my own ass. Mm. So as I'm talking to the battalion commander, I see my soldier flipping around <laughs> and I'm like, dude. And I, I yell at him. And he goes, but ma'am, I wipe my own ass. And the colonel just looks at me and goes, see, that's what I'm talking about. But, you know, so so when you talk about how did you feel on the deployments. This all sounds very army normal. Yes, yes. You know, you can talk about sitting in a foxhole and um, going out on convoys, getting lost in the middle of Iraq and, you know literally shitting your pants because you're sick with a virus or because you've been on a convoy for four hours and you're lost and you can't pull over. So, you know, at one point in time, you hang your booty out the door and hold on to your driver. doesn't Mm -hmm. matter if he's male or female or what. You just hold on to him. You're in survival mode. Yes, yes. And the guys behind you, you just hope that they know to swerve. (laughs) You know, you could talk about all those things, but the, the memories I have are you know (laughs) i wipe my own ass or um one of my soldiers shooting while we're on the while we're occupying positions in the perimeter what are you shooting at and he goes there's two dogs out there (laughs) and i'm like don't shoot at them like let them let them enjoy their lives okay (laughs) like those are the things you have to say something now because it's because um you know otherwise they will (laughs) Yes. <laughs> yes. And that'll be a perfectly normal day in the army. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Why are you throwing rocks? Well, it says there's UXOs out there. Do you want to blow up? I'm just curious. I don't think there really are UXOs out there. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Well, so uh, you get done with that tour and you come back. And how, how was the, you know, how was the transition? <clears throat> Obviously, the transition between Afghanistan and Iraq, two very different places. A lot of people don't understand that unless yeah. they've gone. Yeah. Um, I've never been to Afghanistan, but I've heard a lot of stories about Afghanistan. So obviously, I know that they're very different places. What was it like, though, in the mental transition inside of coming back from Iraq and after having been in Afghanistan. So you, you had these, you know, sicknesses pop up during Mm -hmm. this time. To me, it sounds like there were some things that you didn't get to realize as much as you would have wanted to. And also that you had some things within that space that you really enjoyed. So army career, right? Right. Exactly. (laughs) It's a normal army career. What was it like, though, mentally transition, you know, coming back and, you know, having dealt with those deployments? Did you did you feel good about it all? Did you feel good about your career and your time that you spent over there? How did you feel? I, I very much felt good about it. Yes. Um, you know, I know a lot of people deal with the questions, the politics side of it, but I truly believe that whether or not you like our politicians or whether or not you agree with our politicians, that they made the best decisions they could possibly have made given the information they had. Mm -hmm. So I don't feel guilty about anything I did um, to support our nation doing what they thought was right. Mm -hmm. 
Um, what I will say is when you come back, it was amazing because all of our fathers and our grandfathers had dealt with Vietnam. And so they were super appreciative of our service. Yeah. And even the people that disagreed politically with our activities in Afghanistan or Iraq still appreciated our service. But I will say there was, there was two major things. When I came back from Afghanistan, it wasn't super stressful. I do remember making a phone call and being like, hey, I need to talk to somebody. Um, but the transition was good because we stayed together. And the, the people I went to Iraq with was, I think, like 85% of the people I went to Afghanistan with. So it was really tight organization. A lot of us had gotten promoted, but we, were, we still had our same battle buddies. I still had the same people in my tent with me. Uh, so that was good. But then when I got home from Iraq and realized I'm going to be home for a while because I was going on to the captain's career course. So I knew I had some time away from the active uh, deployable service. And I was also going to grad school at that time. So I knew I had a year stabilization. Um, the first thing was I got a hotel room for a couple of days and I ate nothing but meat lovers stuffed crust pizza. That was a new thing back then. <laughs> Um, drank wine and ate chunky monkey ice cream, Ben and Jerry's. And that's all I ate for a couple of days. And I'd shower like every two hours just, <laughs> just because I could. And, and that was, that was my transition oh was my just, I, it's I, such a good feeling yes. coming back to America. Isn't yes. it? Like, yes. I, I know what you're talking about with the uh, Bangor, Maine, you know, we had the, um, the American Legion lining up and it was all, it was mostly Vietnam veterans, mm -hmm. which was really cool. You know, I guess yeah. I'd always kind of thought it would be World War II mostly, but they were getting a lot older, but having those Vietnam guys to welcome us back really yeah. meant a lot because what they went through just, you know, hell on earth. Yeah. Yeah, and, they really did. And for them to be there for us and support was just tremendously beautiful. Yeah. I think. Yeah. So y you have this experience. You come back, eat your ice cream, eat yeah. your pizza. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you're having fun. You're enjoying the American way of life. Yeah, yeah. But the one thing I have to say is, so you talked about the emotion of it, which is an interesting question that I, I very rarely get to talk about. And, and the way I describe it to somebody who's never been deployed is if you've been at a roller skating rink and you go like they're four hour sessions usually. So if you show up at a roller skating rink, when the session opens and you stay on roller skates for four hours at the end of the roller skating session, when you're putting your shoes back on and you start walking those first couple of steps, you know, it's the right thing, you know, it's normal, but it just feels so odd. Yeah. And that's the best way that I can describe coming back from a deployment where all of your best friends lived in the same tent with you, you showered in the same place, you ate in the same place, you lived in the same place, you were singularly focused. And then all of a sudden your mom wonders why you don't call her every Sunday night. Right. And you're back to the normal and you're like, this, this is normal, but it doesn't feel right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's so interesting. That's, that's a really good analogy to describe it too. You in, in coming back and how, how much longer were you back before on to the next phase of your career? It was, oh, it was almost, it was probably four or five months. Okay. Um, maybe up to six months. And then I transitioned and went to, uh, back to Fort Leonard Wood to go to the captain's career course. Okay. Okay. So captain's career course. Mm -hmm. And obviously your time overseas taught you a lot about leadership. I'm sure. Um, 
do's and don'ts. Yes. yes. <laughs> but also, like, you know, just learning what it's like to be in, you know, regular army. Was that so different than what you'd imagined from being at West Point? Was it just a lot different than the, you know, atmosphere there? Did it feel very different to you and what you imagined? It wasn't different than I imagined, but I never thought I could get so close to mm. other human beings that weren't family. I mean, to this day, I still get pinged. I was on a woman's evening mentorship call. And one of my soldiers that I haven't seen his face other than on social media in probably close to 20 years. Wow. Pops onto this women's thing because he had registered, got the link. And he's like, I'm just going to sit on this. Yeah. And he's like, I just, I just want to hear what you have to say, Lieutenant Peplinski. I'm like, well, it's now Lieutenant Colonel Jaster, <laughs> but really cool. Like, but That's cool. I didn't realize you could get that close to other human beings yeah. that weren't family. So I think that was the biggest difference. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So you go through the captain's career course and you know, you make it through that and you spend how, how much longer before ranger school before you decide to make that huge Oh, God. Jump. So I went to the captain's career course in 2004. Okay. Uh, met the love of my life. I get my master's and then I go get stationed in South Korea for two years. Hmm. At the end of my South Korea tour, I'm a little um, I'm a little heartbroken about where the military is. This is uh, 2007. I, I don't like where the Army's going. Um, I have some distrust of certain leadership mm -hmm. that I've seen. Um, and... But I still loved the army. Okay. And I never, ever, 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 ever thought I would get out of the military. But then things are progressing with Alan and he's in the Marine Corps. And so we're trying to do the best we can. We actually get married and we can't figure out a way to live together with him being a Marine and me being in the army. Right. So he gets out of the Marine Corps and is like, I'll follow you. Like, your career is important to you. That's fine. Mm. And he does that. The Marine leaving the Marine Corps. That's a rough one. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. it's their identity. There isn't anybody who's been a Marine, even if they didn't graduate from boot camp, where it isn't part of who they are. Absolutely. And, and that's one of the things I love about the Marines. I'm a little jealous of them because they really know how to sell the fighting dragons with a sword type advertisements right yeah. they're, truthfully they're, me too yeah, yeah I, I love that about them yes yeah so i actually thought i'm like okay well i'll just transition and become a marine and they wanted me to go back to the basic course i'm like mm, two combat deployments <laughs> two company commands and go to the basic course if i want to be a marine because they don't care right right yeah. i was like um yeah. i'm too good for that which i'm no <laughs> probably not the right decision um <laughs> it was the right decision for us though so alan was out for a little bit and then he's like you know it's a little weird for me to be the FRG, the family readiness group leader for my wife. He's mm. like, eh. So he joins the reserve and it's perfect for him. He volunteers for a deployment. He's doing awesome stuff. And I'm sitting there going, I don't know that I can make this guy follow me on PCSs for the next 20 years. Okay. Like I just, right. I don't know if that's the man I married yeah. and I don't know that I want him to be that person. Understandable. But I also don't want to be a single mother. Absolutely. So we had a lot of conversations. I'm like, well, if we don't have kids, then I'll stay active duty. But if you want kids, and he's always wanted to have kids. And, and you'll see him later today, Tim. He is, he's a lot of amazing things, but he is a fantastic dad. That's awesome. Like there is, I could hate him 
but I will never, ever say he's anything but an amazing father. Mm. So, you know, this man needed to have kids. He was, he was built to raise the next generation. So eventually I'm like, okay, I'm a little bitter about the military. I'll just get out, get established and then join the reserve. Again, I'm making a really short story long. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. Go <laughs> so, ahead. Yeah. So I ended up getting out and I got a job with Shell Oil Company, Royal Dutch Shell, was traveling a lot, making really, really good money. Alan's in the reserve. We have our son. Um, a couple years later, um, we're, we're trying to have our, our second kid. And somebody contacts me via Facebook, um, a West Point, uh, West Point woman gra- graduate, um, her name is Val Coffee. She she finds me on Facebook and was like, hey, we have a unit we'd love for you to join. I'm like, okay, you know, I want to be in the reserve anyways. I've been thinking about this for a while. This is just the the trigger I needed. Tried to get back in. I was completely out, but because we had moved, um, nobody ever told me. So I couldn't become a reservist. So I had to start paperwork and nobody knew how to get me back in the military. I mean, I even went to the recruiter at the mall trying to figure out, hey, how do you get me in? And they're like, we don't know. So it took another three years. It wasn't until 2012 after I'd had my daughter where they're like, okay, we can get you in. This is what you need to do. I had to go back to MEPS. I had to duck walk with a bunch of 18 year olds. Like I had to go through. Wow. Yes. Did you redo all that? It was miserable. Yes. And I'm a captain. And of course, you know, they're yelling at all these kids that they, you know, they picked up from the mall. They drove them to MEPS in downtown Houston. and, And I'm sitting there, I drove up and they're like, you can't have a personal, a POV here. I'm like, Stop me. <laughs> like, I, I can just leave and come yeah, back tomorrow. Yeah. Oh my God, I don't it care. sounds like a very humbling process. It was. Yeah. It was. So I finally get back in and I'm in, I'm an IMA, individual mobilization augmentee. I always say that wrong, but I'm drilling, but I'm not an official, what the army calls an MTO or a TPU unit. So we don't go to the rifle range once a month. We don't, or once, twice a year. We take our PT test and we do our sexual harassment training. But that was like the only army stuff we did. I very rarely wore a uniform. And I'm in that unit and I joined in 2012. And this is where I'm, I'm going back to the, like, I really miss the camaraderie during my break in service. My very first drill, we went rock climbing and then jumped out of airplanes. And I was like, oh, these are my peeps. (laughs) That's awesome. Like I'm home. I have my tribe. And um, so so it's a couple years later. It's 2014. I've been in this unit for two years. The SAR Major, SAR Major Robbie Payne, sends me an email and he's like, hey, listen, you know they're opening Ranger School to Women. Here's the Alarac that the Army published. Here's a bunch of General Odierno saying, hey, you know, if you're interested, you need to go. And SAR Major Payne was like, hey, you know, Major Jaster, like – People are talking about you. You you need to do this. And I simply wrote him back. I'm like, sorry, Major, I like I like room service. Yeah. Like that's it. I'm I'm not going to ranger school. <laughs> you know, and of course, just like my husband, my sorry major knows what's good for me more than I do. Um, so the two of them talked. And uh and they decided to hit me up with a flanking maneuver. And so my husband, while we were sitting down for dinner at this very table that we're talking at, um, kids at the table. My husband's like, all right, baby, let's talk about ranger school. And he poked and prodded and, and kind of pushed me. And I'm, hey, I, I, don't, I don't think I want to do this. You know, mm. there's, there's younger women out there that are more physically fit, that haven't had a hip surgery, that don't have two kids, that don't have a full-time job with Royal Dutch Shell, who don't travel for work. 
And he goes, yeah, but, but you were really made for this. Mm. And uh, I had a quote in my signature block in my email at that time that was Einstein, um, a ship is safest at the shore, but that's not what it's built for. Mm. And so he threw that in my face, um, not very politely. <laughs> and then he also said to me, he's like, you know, what if you don't go and none of those young women graduate? And I'm like, well, why wouldn't they graduate? And he goes, they don't have the bucket of experience. Mm. Like, if you're going to ranger school just to see if you can do it, that's one thing. But if you're going to ranger school and you've had this experience that that you and I have already discussed him of Afghanistan, of Iraq, of two years in South Korea, of some great leadership and some really poor leadership, mm -hmm. that bucket of experience is something you can pull from when you want to be a first. Yeah. You know, it's one thing if you're going to be one of many, but if you're going to be one of a first, you don't only need that experience and that that support at while you're executing the school, but you also need it afterwards because we're sitting here talking in 2023 um, and I graduated in 2015. Mm. Like the haters are still here. I still get nasty notes. I still get contacted via social media and have people say horrible things about me. And, you know, you have to have that bucket of strength, that background, that group of support, that soldier that you haven't seen for 20 years that logs into a female only call just to see your face. If you don't have that, it's really hard to go through and be a first. So my husband really talked me into it. Um, what do you think? What do you think? And, and that's awesome. They did that. It's, it's great to have that support. Did you, what do you think was the most difficult thing for you in being a woman in that role? Um, going into that, obviously, um, first time officer, right? First time a reservist officer yep. had done this. Yes. What was the most challenging thing about being a woman in that space? I mean, obviously, you don't want to just take on that woman title. Right. That's not, and that's a point of the book, right? Yep. Yep. You don't want to just take that on. You want to take on that role as an individual. But what was the most challenging part aspect of that as a woman? You know, it started as, hey, I want to prove that women can do this. And what happened is I failed. I failed a lot. And I, I, I failed boldly, shall we say. And what I realized as I went through that is being a female graduating from ranger school was nowhere near as important as being a female soldier next to some of these guys in foxholes, mm. carrying the 240, carrying the extra ropes in swamps or in mountains, being there and having deep conversations and having these 22, the average age for these young men who go to ranger school is 23 years old. Mm. The average distance walked in nine weeks, if you go straight through, is 200 miles. The pack is 75 pounds on average, which means sometimes it's lighter. Sometimes it's a whole lot heavier. Um, you know, you eat two meals a day. The average day is 19 and a half hours over nine weeks. So, you know, just looking at these statistics, the automatic thought process is I don't want my mom, my sister, my wife, my, my daughter going through this. Right. Which is a very natural thing, especially here in the South, right? Yeah. Like we want to protect our women and children, which is a very valid statement. But these guys had never seen not only a female who's also sleeping less than three and a half, four hours a night, um, also, you know, carrying the weight and walking, 
walking, but I'm also a 37 year old mother of two that has a full-time desk job. Wow. So what became really important to me while I was there wasn't graduating anymore. It was showing young soldier, young E4 mechanic from Hawaii that I can carry my own weight so that when he's a sergeant major, number one, he isn't letting his women not pull their own weight, but he's also not assuming that they don't want to pull their own weight because there's two sides to that coin. You know, I've never gotten mad at when I hear people say, oh, well, I worked with females and they couldn't pull their own weight. The first thing I ask them is, well, what was your team leader or squad leader doing? Because if you had the opportunity as a young male soldier to sit on your butt while somebody else packed the truck, you would have done it. Yeah. So that squad leader was letting those young women do it. Every E4 and below would sit on their butt if they could. Mm-hmm. So, you know, first thing is it's a leadership thing. And then then second is, you know, these these guys need to know that there's women out there that like hunting, that like fishing, that like walking through the woods, that can spot a rattlesnake pretty damn quickly, that know that you don't have to be afraid of a water moccasin because they're following you through the swamps because they want your shadow not to eat you. <laughs> like these were things I was teaching some of my city city folk peers yeah. while at ranger school. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Then you enjoyed that process. I did. Yeah. I did. I so there's a uh, he's he's not a lieutenant anymore, but he was a lieutenant when we went through ranger school in the Mexican army. And every once in a while he oh, pings wow. me on social media and he goes, "I can always remember your smile because I smiled so much at ranger school cuz I had kids." And so we'd be walking through the mountains in Dahlonega and I'd think, oh, my God, I want to bring my kids camping here. This will be awesome. And I'd say stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And these young 23, 24-year-olds are like, what the F is wrong with you? <laughs> like, how can you even think that it's a beautiful sunrise? We haven't slept in two days. That's amazing. What, what would you say to people that say that the standard has been sacrificed in letting a female into the Rangers? We have some tough questions here. Yes. Yeah. No, it's a great question. What would you say? What would you say to those to those folks that ask that? Well, you know, it's it's really hard for me to confront that because the five mile run was still five miles for me. The the timer still stopped and started at the same forty minutes. Like my forty minute time hack wasn't any different. Like they didn't they didn't give me five minutes extra in the beginning. My chin over bar pull ups were still chin over bar pull ups. Mm. My push ups were the same. Um, my, my ruck had the, I had the exact same packing list as all of my peers. There wasn't like, I didn't have a pink ruck. Yeah. Like for an example though, when the RIs were inspecting our packing list before we, before and after every mission, everything's laid out. Like there isn't pink camo. They can't tell which one was the girl's ruck. So there was no way for them to say, oh, well, you know, she doesn't need to have an extra pair of boots because she's a girl. So I don't understand what standards could have changed unless it was the grading standards, which is what people will talk about. Well, the grading standards are the grading standards, and they're always changing Mm -hmm. because there is no two mission. Anyone who's served in uniform knows that no two mission executions go the same. So it's impossible to say that you and I running the same mission were graded exactly the same right? because we just... It's not possible. Right. And it's humans. Yes. It's very, it's extremely variable. Um, Now, 
were the women pushed through? Well, if I was pushed through, why did it take six months for me to finish a nine-week school? Mm. Like that, that one's a hard pill to swallow. And, yeah. and we've already talked about it, Tim, right? I, I've been in Afghanistan. I've been in Iraq. I'm a West Point grad. Do you really think I can't pass tactics at the same standard as an E4 who's been in the Army for two years? Mm. Like it, it's, it's kind of mind-blowing when people question the standards. And then on the far end of that, the people who are angry at me or Chris or Shay or any of the 115-plus women who have graduated from Ranger School, the questions I have for them is, did every man who earned his tab from 1950 to today deserve it? Or did some of those slide through? No. Did everyone who get kicked out deserve to get kicked out? Or did some really, really good soldiers get kicked out of ranger school for interesting reasons? And to top it all off, is it my fault if the grading standards were different? And if you ask any one of my peers, they will say that I was held to a higher standard. And the reason why they'll say that is because we were very visible no one else was having congressmen ask for our grading cards. Like none of my classmates that graduated with me were having their records questioned by the newspapers, the media, Congress. Um, so if we were held to a lower standard, that would have come out. Um, and not just, hey, I know a guy who knows a guy who says he was there. Because that's all I've received in since 2015, in eight years, all I've re I haven't received a single person who was there that said, I know you met a lower standard. Mm, that's important, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Your, your time in, you, you make it through, you said six months. Why yes. is that? So is that recycles? Yes. Is I kept getting recycled for um, patrols. Mm, and okay. To go through that that many times is yes. pretty tough. Yes. Yeah, you made it harder on yourself. I, I did. I did. You know, and, and so there's a couple things. There's a couple things about that. First of all, I was a field grade officer, right? So I would hope that I'm being graded at a higher standard. Like airborne school, you fall out of a plane five times without getting injured, you graduate. Okay. That's the same for every every Tom, Dick, and Harry. If you are a a major about to be a lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Army, combat engineer and you're going to ranger school, you should be held to the world's highest standard because the decisions I make are starting to be no longer at the tactical level. They're starting to be closer to the strategic level. And I need to truly, truly understand every inner working of our ranger battalion missions so that I can properly support them in future wars. Mm. So if I was held to a higher standard, I'm okay with that because I think that's that's the right thing. So I like to say that it took me that long to, to pass tactics because I was being held to the utmost highest standard. I don't know. You know, maybe that's just me making myself feel good. But I will say there's a secondary benefit because a lot of people say, yeah, we know some women are strong or some people, some women can live in the field. Well, I was there for six months. Yeah. And deployments are six months. Mm -hmm. So if I can deal with that physically at 37 years old, already already had had a hip surgery yeah. and I can stay in the field carrying the rocks, jumping on airplanes, doing all the things that my 22, 23 year old peers are doing for six straight months. Stop telling me that women can't do it. Some women can't do it, but some men can't do it. Absolutely. And some, 
Some small men have problems at that school because carrying a 90 pound ruck when you're 140 pounds sucks, whether you're male or female. So, you know, let's, let's start talking about more the real issues. And I think me being there for six months was a, uh, a huge benefit in the long run, not to me, but, um, but to the discussion. Yeah. You weren't going to give up. No. God, no. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. You know, the Spartan saying, right? Come home with your shield or on it. There you go. <laughs> you wanted to adopt that. That's important. Yes. That's awesome. So you make it through. Yes. I mean, what did that accomplishment feel like to, to, to come to the other side of that? Graduation day was insane. Mm-hmm. Like it really was a, wow, I made it. Mm-hmm. But then... But then we got in the car and we started driving with my husband and two kids and we, we drove back to Houston, Texas and we needed to go get groceries and dinner needed to be cooked and um, Halloween was right around the corner. So the kids needed costumes and then I went back to work on either Monday or Tuesday after graduation um, and I got in the elevator at, at Shell Oil at, in Houston and and I was just... I was just a project manager with a shaved head and, (laughs) and that was it. And it was really interesting because for probably 48 hours, I was on people magazine and being interviewed by newspapers and everybody cared and wanted to take my picture. And then by Monday I was a mom Mm -hmm. and an employee and and it was back to normal. Mm -hmm. So since then it's been, it's been rather interesting in the fact that I'm just me and and that's really where the book comes in, the delete the adjective. I'm just me, and I want to be the best version of a reserve officer that I can be. And Ranger School is part of that. Yeah, that's awesome. Delete the adjective. What was the motivation for you writing that? I mean, I think we've discussed some of that, right? Like yeah. you don't want to identify as the woman. Right. Right, female. Yes. Yeah. What was the motivation behind that to, to write that book? So originally I took really copious notes while I was at ranger school and I did that to stay awake. And I told myself that I was doing it because someday I was going to write all of my experiences down in a journal for my kids because I missed, I missed my daughter learning how to ride a two wheel bike. I missed my son's birthday. Like I missed a lot of really big things. Um, I missed my husband's birthday. I just, I just wasn't there for a lot of stuff. And I wanted them to know why I was gone for so long. Had I been gone for nine weeks, that would have been one thing. But being gone for six months, um, it felt it felt wrong. So I had all my notes and all the letters that I wrote home to my mom, my brother, my husband, my kids, uh, and I had them all together. And then I deployed again for in 2018 as a reservist. And when you deploy as a reservist, it was a nine and a half month deployment. But there's also a mobilization, so you're gone almost a year. And I thought, oh, I'm doing this again to my family, to my job, um, to my life. Like I'm, I'm stopping my life for this army itch I have that I keep scratching. And so while I was deployed, I made sure I wrote that book. Mm-hmm. And this was 2018, wrote everything down. And it ended up being something like 750 odd pages. I mean, I wrote every meal, what MRE I ate, what I mixed with mint, what, like just a level of detail that nobody, not even my kids would care about, <laughs> especially my kids. And, 
and I didn't do anything with it. You know, I actually sent it to my son when he turned like 13. Hey, why don't you take a look at this? He got partway through it. He's like, yeah, mama, I don't care. I love you. He's a 13 year old boy. Yeah. Yeah, He's like, I love you, but I don't care. Yeah. My husband read it and he's like, this is great. I didn't know half this stuff, but I think my husband was the only one who thought it was great. (laughs) And so until last year, 2022, I just sat on the book. And then with my business partners at Talent War Group kind of nudged me. They're like, hey, you're, you like to tell your story, but you can only tell your story to so many people at a time. Having a book is a way to get it out there, but you need to tell your story. And I didn't want to make a leadership book. I didn't want it to be preachy. I didn't want it to be anything more than saying, Hey Tim, if you've never met Elisa Jaster, who likes to bow hunt, who likes to go camping, who likes to, you know, just, just be down to earth. It, what I call down to earth or redneck, whatever you want. Um, <laughs> if you've never met. I like some, redneck. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, you're from San Antonio. <laughs> But if you've never met someone... What are you saying about me, Lisa? I'm saying I I moved to San Antonio for a reason. Yeah, yeah. We blend. Yes, yes. I haven't showed you our bow range out here yet. Oh, that's awesome. I can't wait When it stops raining, we'll go out there. Yeah. But if you haven't met someone like Lisa Jaster, I want you to read this book. It's a really quick read, less than 250 pages, audiobooks six and a half hours long. I read it myself. I just want you to get to know someone like me. So that in the future, when you're looking to your left and your right, you don't automatically assume that that woman needs to be taken care of. Mm. And then I also want you to understand that I like when my husband opens the door for me. Yeah. I also like when I pull in the garage and he hands me my bow because there's turkeys on the woodpile. <laughs> like I, I want both of those. I want to live in the and. Mm-hmm. But if you've never met someone like me, if you've never met somebody like Chris Christ or Shay Haver, it's impossible to believe that women can be successful in combat. Mm. But the minute you peel back the curtain and get to know ladies like them, ladies like me, you'll understand we just want to serve the country in the best capacity that we possibly can. And part of that is to get the best leadership training that the U.S. Army has to offer. So let me go to ranger school so I can be better at my job. And that's, that's completely what the book's about. That makes perfect sense. That's awesome. And you you enjoyed the whole process of writing it. I mean, because you, you, you'd written it much earlier. Yes. And then it finally gets the process of actually putting something out there. That's scary. It's scary. Did you, were you nervous, excited, trepidatious? I mean, this is very nerve wracking, you yeah. know, putting that out there. That yeah. was hard. Well, so when I started with this, you know, 750 page book that nobody's ever going to want to read to include those people nearest and dearest to my heart, um, I finally started working with an editor and said, you know, nobody's going to read this. Like, it's not the tale of two cities. It's not that interesting. It's six months of my life. What do I do? And I had to sit down and say, well, what's the point of the book? And you know, every editor I worked with, I've had a couple publishers that were willing to sponsor the book and they're like, well, we need to do a women's empowerment book. I'm like, this isn't about women's empowerment. Yeah. You didn't want that. Women are already empowered. Like women who want to do things like go to ranger school are already confident and strong and they, they don't need a book to tell them you're confident and strong. This is for the other side of the coin. The group of people that says women can't do this or the women who are like, hey, I can't do this. Mm. Like, I want them to know that I, I'm nothing special. I just 
worked really hard at doing something that nobody should do at 37 years old. You wanted this to motivate. Yes. Yes. Both sides of that coin, the men and the women. Hmm. And so when I worked with the editor and I finally figured out who my audience was or what my goal was of the book, I put a sticky on my desk and, and had to start editing and cutting, cutting 65% of the book away. And that became hard because you, you wanted to stay real because you don't want it to just be the dramatic stories because then it ends up like Hollywood. And, and I didn't do anything amazing. I, I, every person who's gone to ranger school has those exact same stories. So how do I make it interesting without making me sound like I'm some sort of hero? Cause I'm not. And, and that was really hard. So when I did my pre-reviews, when I sent it out to somebody, I sent it out to somebody who had been with me at ranger school for almost the entire six months, um, a male classmate and said, read this. And when he, when he read it, he wrote back, he's go, it, I changed all the names. He's like, I'm so sorry I did this. I, I felt so bad about this. And like he he read the stories and he knew which one was him mm. and, and what activities he had done that made my life a little harder at times. And he's like, oh my God, oh my God, this was so real. And he ended up going on Amazon and actually writing, I am also class 10-15 with Lisa and this is true. So when you asked if it was hard to put out there, I'm circling back around to say the hardest part was I wanted to make sure that the stories that stayed in the book actually resembled what we went through and not some Hollywood version, some glorified version of Ranger School. And to have, now I've had four of my classmates, one of them said, hey, I didn't realize I was such an asshole. Um, I had somebody else say, hey, I, I didn't realize I was so uptight because, you know, you can figure out if it's you or not. Um, but I've had four of my classmates read it and contact me back and say, yes, this is actually what happened. So I don't feel like it's misrepresenting my, my part in females graduating from ranger school. Mm, that's awesome. I'm glad you, I'm glad you, um, were able to so aptly explain that because it's a hard, it's a hard thing to talk about, uh, you know, like the, the process of that and, you know, stepping over, uh, perceived barrier, a barrier or a perceived barrier. And you were because you were the first of your type to make it through that. And by that, I mean, officer and reservist yeah. that's exciting. You know, yeah. in the space, obviously female officer reservist, but that's huge. Like yeah. you stepped into that space and were able to accomplish something that you probably dreamed about. Yeah. Um, well, hadn't dreamed about before, but then husband brought it in and, <laughs> and friends. And then they said, hey, Darn you got to do this. <laughs> so you you made it through that. Now, on the other side of this book, you're a mother, obviously, and you get to do that. What What's it like being a mom? Do you? Do you very much enjoy that? I, well, <laughs> I if you, I mean, if, yeah, the, 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 you can't answer this one wrong, right? Get <laughs> <laughs> be careful with your words on this one. <laughs> you know, I, I never wanted to be a mom. Like that was never, you know, there's some girls that dream about getting married and having kids. Like if I got married, okay. I, I knew I wanted to be a soldier. Mm. Like I knew, yeah. but I never knew I wanted to be a wife or a mother. And, and I am not a good baby mama. Like when I had my kids, both of them, I went back to work at six weeks when daycare would accept them. Like I was like, okay, I'm the, these things are awesome. Yes, I love them. Blah, 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 blah. Take them, please. 
Um, but now that I have an 11 and a 14 year old, like if I could take maternity leave right now or postpartum leave or whatever they call it, I would, I would take whatever time, uh, the corporate America would give me so I could stay home with my kids now. Like, um, so being a mom at ranger school was a complete treat. Mm. And, and here's why some of those young guys would come to me and talk about, I, I saw ultrasounds. Some guy showed me an ultrasound he had laminated in his pocket. I am certain that had I not been at ranger school or that I had not been a mother, there is no way he would share that with anyone. You know, he got a letter while he was away at ranger school from his wife saying, hey, we're pregnant. Here's an ultrasound. And who was he going to share that with if it wasn't for me? And, and we talked about different types of 320 rounds and then we talked about ultrasounds. Like, you know, we did, we did that complete transition. So being a mom was a blessing there for that reason. But also understanding that there are barriers that need to be broken. But more important to me than any barriers was that I wanted my kids to know that everyone can do anything they want if they really push for it. And all men are not created equal. Like, I hate that s- statement. We talk about equality and equity and DEI and all these great things. Well, if all men were created equal, all you dudes would be like Tom Brady and all of us females would be like Giselle, you know, tall, gorgeous, popular, rich, great. We're not all created equal. We're all created different with equal opportunities. And I wanted my kids to see that. And the only way to see that up close and personal was for mom to do it and not back down. Mm-hmm. And so they were part of my strength. And they were also part of the reason why I didn't want to be gone from them, but they were part of my strength. So being a mom there was very interesting. Um, And the other benefit to being a mom while I was there is I realized a lot about men, Mm. not just my man, but men in general. My my husband didn't know what to do cooking dinner and being no parent. And this isn't a male or female thing. Being a single parent is freaking hard, just just hard. And so... He removed our coffee table from our living room and got a wrestling mat. Mm. And so when the kids were, while he was cooking dinner, the kids practiced their wrestling and jujitsu in the living room. That's awesome. Okay. Well, that, that's his way of parenting. Mm-hmm. And my husband can put in a killer ponytail in a, a little girl's head, you know? <laughs> and, and he has a closeness with his daughter that isn't a, she's daddy's girl. It's, hey, that's my little warrior. Mm. There's a relationship there that would not have existed had I not disappeared, been completely unavailable to communicate with them at all for six months. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. And now, you know, you're in a space where you're doing other incredible things too. Trying. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, but you, you know, you've obviously got a fierce love for athletics, fierce love for working out. You're wearing the team RWB yeah. shirt right now. Um, <clears throat> This is already sponsored by them. We're not going to go too much into them. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Mike. Uh, you know, but uh, jujitsu, a huge part of your life. You, yes. you know, that's that's one aspect we're still going to have to photograph of your life, uh, <laughs> and we will. What do you What do you love about that? What about being on the mats really helps you? Obviously, there's a there's a competitive perseverance side to you. Yeah, that really wants to fight. Yeah. Are you a Jets guy? Ah. I'm, I'm going to talk you into it if you're in San Antonio for an extended period of time. So <laughs> wait for it. 
you guys are a cult. <laughs> you guys, every place I go, there's there's a, 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 one person that'll be like in my group. Yes. That's like, come on, Tim, come on, come on, come on, come on, come join, come join us. And Hug then a they're friend. all yeah, yes. <laughs> they're all dancing in a ring around a fire yes. by the end of it. Yeah, yes. <laughs> yes. No, I always try cult. to. It is incredibly tough the the times that I have rolled, and I yeah. have all the respect in the world for those that do it. Yeah. Um, to answer your question, and yes, I, I think everybody should get on the mats. Um, there's a couple things I think everybody should do. You should learn how to swim. You should do some gymnastics so you have some body control. You should play a ball, ball sport. Uh, you should get punched in the face at least once um, just so you know how you'll react. And you should learn how to do Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Mm. And I say Brazilian jiu-jitsu specifically because um, young men know this better than young women just because of uh, cultural norms. But every fight ends up on the ground. Mm. Right. And, and the body control and strength strength required to do jujitsu is phenomenal. And it teaches you how to handle yourself in those situations. And God forbid you actually have to get into a fight in the real world, but it's good to know how to do it, how to handle it and how to react. I say all that, but then I say, your original question is, you know, why do you love it? I love it because I suck at it. <laughs> I am terrible at jujitsu. Um, I'm a brown belt now, and every day I I feel like I'm getting a little bit worse. And then there's a, a a beacon of light, and you're like, "Oh my god, did you see that? I just swept that dude!" And it's really exciting. Um, but it's a challenge every day, and somebody's always better than you. And even a beginner can can get you when you're advanced. Because you make a mistake or you try something new and it's really personal. It's like the army in the fact that you break all of those uncomfortable barriers. You know, in the army, you tell an off-color joke and everybody laughs. And um, I'm not talking about being racist or sexist. I'm just talking about um, being overly comfortable talking about death or some of those other barriers that that we've already broken in this Absolutely. conversation that, that that's a tough place to be on the mat and there is a lot of joking and there yes. is that camaraderie it's huge yeah i mean and joking fraternal it's it's a part of the sport if it wasn't there it would kind of feel weird right yes I, so one of my favorite examples is that my husband and i started jujitsu together and the truth was our son was doing jujitsu and our daughter would later start doing jujitsu as well and we wanted to be on the sidelines doing, saying something more than sweep the leg because we had watched Karate Kid too many times. Like we wanted to be able to be active parents in our, our son's activity. You know, uh, my son pole vaults now. So I know the difference between a four step, six step, eight step, 12 step. Like I, I've learned these things because I want to be a proper sideline parent, not just say run faster, jump higher. So that's why we started Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Well, my husband started first, and then when I was done breastfeeding, I, I waited till I was done breastfeeding to to start Jiu-Jitsu for the sake of my partners. I figured that would be a little too too offensive. Um, but there was one day where the professor Umpiano, my coach in Houston, um, Gracie Baja West Chase, stopped us in the middle of doing a drill. And my husband is laying on some random person and I have some random dude laying across me, like on top of me. And I'm laying next to my husband who's laying on someone else. And we just stayed there while Professor Umpiano explained the movement with a, another human laying on, on me. Um, and it was completely normal. Yeah, yeah. And there was nothing weird about it. And afterwards in the locker room, everybody was joking about, you know, Alan dealing, having to deal with 
his wife rolling. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't an issue because it's this group of people, people who jits, we even shake hands differently. It's, it's they're like the military. There's, you've broken those boundaries. Yes, I've had your sweat drop on my face. I've tried to kill you a hundred times, but I'm trying to make you a better version of you and you're trying to make me a better version mm -hmm. of me. And so if I see you in the grocery store, I've got a friend that I do jits with. He came up to me and hugged me in the grocery store. I hate hugs. And I was like, what are you doing? He goes, literally, we did three five-minute rolls yesterday, and you can't hug me in the grocery store. I'm like, yeah, don't touch me, dude. <laughs> but but it's just that weird, awkward relationship, and it's yeah. this it's this sense of community. And and I am going to tie it back in Team RWB. Um, you know, it's it's something I never knew I needed until I went to Afghanistan, until I came back from Iraq. That sense of community, those people that you can let your guard down, the people that can be fight club, the single serving friends. I don't want any single serving friends. And my army friends and my jujitsu friends are not single serving friends. They're okay with Lisa, the nerd who goes to a distillery last night. And instead of drinking excellent whiskey, I take a tour of the distillery and try to find out what the pressure the vessels are at, <laughs> because I think it's amazing to have a pressurized copper vessel. And my jujitsu friends accept that of me, Yeah, but not on my nerd. You're a nerd. I'm totally a nerd. I'm totally a nerd. But but it's that's okay. in between those two. The the way I found community until I got back in, or after I got back in the military as a as a part timer as a reservist is through Team RWB because it's similar minded people like my JITS friends, like my RWB friends, like my Army friends. That's awesome. That's really cool. What do you? I mean, what's the goal for you moving forward? What are you, what are you trying to? doing this space you, you talked a little bit you know and i, I don't want to miss the point because like i think we talk about it almost probably every other podcast but adversity is so huge like yes. that's a healing there's a healing component to that community camaraderie those are things that bring us together in the space and a lot of folks need that um everyone needs that yes and it's it's a human thing right it's a human struggle uh, identity is so huge losing purpose yes you've now you know you're, you're back in is is it hard to think about ending your career um definitely yeah do you struggle with that thought of like losing your purpose and obviously you've got many purposes around here but that's a big purpose for you though i mean is that scary to you to in losing that Oh, it's huge. You know, um, I would equate it to empty nest syndrome for people who have been singularly focused on raising your kids. And, you know, I'm going to put it out there right now. Stay at home parents who are who homeschool, who who dedicate so much of their time and energy into their kids. Absolutely fantastic. I I couldn't do that. I don't have the patience for it, but I can't fathom. I'm nervous. My my daughter won't leave for college for another eight years. And my husband and I are already like, what are we going to do when they're gone? Like, oh, my God. Like, I'm already nervous about that. So I can't imagine if um, more of my life was being a mom. Mm -hmm. And so I have I have that potential empty nest syndrome feeling about when my kids leave for college as much as I have that potential empty um empty nest syndrome as when I get out of the military yeah. and I am because when I first got off active duty, I lost too much of that affiliation. I am actively working now. I'm at 17 years of service. I'm actively working now 
to build that community, to build that network. So I do have a safety net when I finally do hang up my uniform. Um, my husband being a Marino six, you know, he's got his community as well. And, and our communities are definitely intertwined, but I am actively searching to ensure that I maintain that sense of tribe. And jujitsu is part of that transition period. Um, Team RWB is a great avenue because they're into fitness. I'm, I'm trying to be the best version of myself. So I try not to drink heavily. I try not to be too gluttonous with my food. And I, I say try on all of these, you mm -hmm. know, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of failures as well, but team RWB I like is because a lot of veterans organizations include, Hey, let's go out and get a drink. Let's go out and do this. Let's, and, and it's not uh, fitness focused, but with RWB, I ran with a guy, I did an ultra trail marathon and he was a, uh, Air Force chaplain, okay. another RWB guy. I didn't know that until we were already out there running. And of course I was wearing my shirt because people talk to me when I wear RWB stuff. So I wear it because I want friends mm -hmm. and you know, we were out there running and talking and that's the kind of stuff they do is, you know, he was 58, 60 years old and out there running. And that's what I want. I want to, I want to win races cause I'm the only person in my age group. So being part of a community that supports the fitness as well as the the tribal behaviors that that uh, we all have in the military is is my happy place. So to make a short story long again, <laughs> um, yes, I am super nervous about finally hanging up my my military uniform, but I am actively fighting against uh, having empty nest syndrome and being no longer part of the community, and that includes joining the VFW and and just go into the veterans day parade. It's okay. You know, don't, don't leave it to our Vietnam veterans to stand on the sidelines and salute the flag. Let's, let's go out there as younger veterans and, and join the community as well. Yeah. I think that pride and service is so important and you so, you so aptly highlighted that. I appreciate you speaking on that. I appreciate you speaking on your career. Um, incredible career and yeah. you're still in it. Yeah. Right. And now, you know, doing big things with the book. Yeah. Yeah. And now, you know, in a new space with, you know, Talent War Group. How long have you been in that again? Yeah. So um, October 1st, I became a partner with Talent War Group okay. and we're a leadership development and talent management firm. Okay. We do executive placement. But the place where I am happiest within Talent War Group is I do keynote speeches I do executive coaching, but then we also do leadership workshops where we come into companies and try to help them see the things you can't see on your own. You know, you can't see the forest through the trees when you're in the thick of things. Any soldier knows that, right? Um, actually doing a map recon completely changes the view of how you should move through the woods. If you're just, if you're just in the thick of it with your compass, you're definitely going to go the wrong way. We come in and we show the, we show people the map and it's all veteran owned. And so we, we leverage a lot of our skills. I, the owner um, and founder is a Navy SEAL. We've got an Air Force linguist who is, she's absolutely phenomenal. Probably one of the smartest women, I, people, men, women, whatever, probably one of the smartest people I've ever met in my entire life. And she still looks put together, which I haven't figured out how to act smart and look put together. And um, we've also got a, a Marine, former, a former Marine captain, always a Marine, whatever, um, combat veteran as well. And so the four of us as partners 
uh, try really hard to use our very different military experiences to help companies grow and, and really develop younger leadership, which is something that's lacking in corporate America. And because I work both corporate America and I'm still got one foot in uniform, I see a lot of ways that corporate America could help the army and the army could help corporate America. Mm, that's awesome. That's cool. Woman of many hats. Yes. A person of many hats. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Period. Yes. <laughs> that's yes. awesome. That's so cool. That's going to be extremely fulfilling for you. It is. It is. Yeah. Well, I, you know what? I've really appreciated having you on um, here. This is such a cool meeting. And uh, I think a lot of people are going to get a lot from this. You know, and it's it's important inspiration in your career. You were inspiring in your time in the military, right? There are a lot of people that drew inspiration from that. There are a lot of people that drew inspiration from you going through ranger school. There are a lot of people that are going to draw inspiration through the book. And now in this space that you're in, Talent War Group, a lot of people are going to draw inspiration from that. And that's huge. I mean, purpose comes from that. So you're going to really draw some purpose out of people. And that's awesome. That I appreciate having you on. Oh, I appreciate I, you being a part of this. Thank you so much for having me on, Tim. Yeah, it's been a real pleasure. And uh, for those of you listening, where do they check out the book? Where can they get the book? Where can they find you on uh, social media if you got it? Oh, I've got you it. You do. I, not only do I have social media, I love it. I love the haters. I love the followers. I love the supporters. Um, I I read all the comments. I, I know I you've do. got it. I'm just leading into yes, people. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the book's on Amazon.com. If you want a signed copy, it's on my website. Um, also links to all my social media is on my website. Awesome. And that, and that web, is... And the website is deletetheadjective.com. Oh, that's um, awesome. But if you look up Lisa Jaster, hopefully I'll pop up a couple of times. Yeah, I'm sure you will. And uh, I've enjoyed having you on. So I appreciate it, Lisa. Thank you. Thank you, Tim. Well, for those of you listening, don't forget to rate... Subscribe to the podcast. Check us out on Spotify uh, and everywhere else uh, podcasts appear. Don't forget about um, don't forget about these stories. You know it's important. What Lisa shared was important. What our World War II veterans share is important. What our Vietnam veterans, what our Korean War veterans share is important. Legacy is a huge piece of this. And so I want to say a special thanks to Team RWB and Mike in recognizing how important our legacies are. And uh, that plays very well into our closing off, which is our legacies are the mission. This has been the Veterans Project Podcast with our founder, Tim Kay. Check us out at www.thevetsproject.com, on Instagram at The Veterans Project, Facebook, The Veterans Project, and Twitter at Project underscore Veteran. Thanks for listening. And don't forget, our legacies are the mission. <laughs>